you're visiting with us and you don't have a Bible with you and you're not too adept at handling an electronic device in front of you, well, then you might grab one of those Bibles in the pew fronts in front of you. You see it around you. It's a little black Bible, so you can grab those. If it's in Korean, well, that's because this building is owned by a Korean Baptist church. If you can read Korean, well, hold on to that. If you can't, well, you might find an English Bible somewhere around you. If it's not right in front of you, well, then frog your neighbor in the arm or thump them in the ear and see if they can pass one your way. If you're a visitor, that would be no, no quicker way to endear yourself to, your, to our members than to do that. Psalm 6 is where we're going to be. If you're not used to handling a Bible, the Psalms are almost right in the middle of the, in the, right in the, middle of the Bible. If you get into the names of the prophets of Ezekiel and Isaiah, Jeremiah and others, well, I'll go back to your left, you'll find the Psalms there. Find yourself in the New Testament, continue going to the left, you'll find it right there, about 40% into your Bible. Those verses are the small numbers, the chapters are the big numbers. We're going to be in big number 6, that's chapter 6. Small numbers are the verses... I wonder if you've ever seen the testing of the tensile strength, tensile strength of a stainless steel rod. It's not a test to necessarily bend the rod. Instead, engineers place the steel in a testing machine that pulls the rod from either end like a candy maker pulling taffy. And the yield strength measures the the point at which the solid steel first begins to stretch. And, and they can test the strength of the steel all the way to failure. At first, it appears like the rod is indestructible. But as the machine continues to pull the steel, something amazing happens. That thick rod begins to dimple in the middle like an hourglass. And the steel stretches until it snaps. Well, God tests his people like an engineer tests his materials. He doesn't test us to the point of failure, so to speak, but he will take us almost to the breaking point. And what we see in the scriptures is that every godly man or woman is a man or a woman who at some point or another has been or will be stretched by God. We see this in Abraham's life, for instance. Tested by God a number of times to trust in his naked word to go to a place that he has not seen and yet God has promised. That even when famine has come into the land to trust God to endure through famine and not go to Egypt, which in his own disobedience he did. And even as God shaped him through all of these tests, we see in Genesis 22, the greatest test. The text says after these things, after all of these things that God had led him through, God tested Abraham. He said, Abraham, he, and Abraham responded, here I am. And God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. What pain to be stretched like that. To be asked to make sacrifices like that. And yet James says at the beginning of his letter, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know something. What is it that you know? You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Yusef not Arkani is an Iranian pastor who was freed on September 8, 2012. Some of you are familiar with his story. In an open letter to his supporters, he wrote this. Indeed, I have been put to the test. The test of faith, which is, according to the scriptures, more precious than perishable gold. The Lord has wonderfully provided through the trial allowing me to face the challenges that were in front of me. And as the scripture says, he will not allow us to be tested beyond our strength. Close quote. Well, in Psalm 6, God has stretched David to the breaking point. We don't really know what the circumstances are. Some believe that Psalm 
6 is connected with Psalm 3 and 4 and 5 and 6. And then all of these are really dealing with Absalom's treachery. Perhaps that's what David is talking about in verses 8 through 10 when he's speaking about his enemies. Other commentators believe that perhaps because he's speaking about death here, that he might be talking about a chronic illness that he's facing. And yet others believe that this is a penitential psalm, a psalm of confession. The early church believed that this was a song of confession. And so they would use it along with five other psalms around Ash Wednesday to prepare for a season of repentance heading toward Easter. We really don't know from the psalm itself what exactly the circumstances are. And as often the case in many psalms, according to God's wisdom, I think that's so that we might look at the psalm, not look at the psalm rather, and go, I see what David is going through, but I've never really been through that before, so Psalm 6 doesn't have anything to do with me. I think by granting us a degree of ambiguity, God is gracious to go that what we see here about who God is and how David turns to him in trial is applicable to any and every season of testing. So we don't know the circumstances, but we know as we read through Psalm 6 that David is going to be nearly overcome with anguish. But then we're going to see at the end of verse, or at the end of verse 10 that all of this testing ends with victory. Just like we read in Psalm 30 verse 5, weeping may tarry into the night, but the joy comes in the morning. Well, that's what we see here. It is pitch dark at the beginning of the psalm. And then the sun begins to peek over in verse 8, and it is morning by verse 10. The victory of the Lord has come. And so in Psalm 6, David's plea at the beginning of the psalm leads to David's victory. And this, this is the pattern for every believer who endures God's testing. That if you are here and you are in Christ Jesus, the pattern of victory following seasons of testing is a pattern that belongs to you by way of promise. And that's what we're going to see here. If you're taking notes and you want to write down my sermon in a sentence, it's essentially the big idea of the text. Meaning, if I call you at 3 o'clock in the morning and you answer and I go, what was Psalm 6 all about? Well, then I trust this is what you're going to tell me. That God sends trials into our lives to deepen our trust in Him for deliverance and to glorify Himself when we're delivered. Let me say that again, maybe even two times. God sends trials into our lives to deepen our trust in Him for deliverance and to glorify Himself when we're delivered. Why does God send trials into our lives? Two reasons. To deepen our trust in Him for deliverance and to glorify Himself when we're delivered. That's the big idea of Psalm 6. Well, here we're going to see easily. You can see it broken up in your own Bible. Psalm 6 is broken up into three easy sections or stanzas. It's a song. Then in verses 1 through 3, we're going to see the following principle, plead for God's grace in trials. Plead for God's grace in trials. Then we're going to see in verses 4 all the way through verse 7, long for God's glory through deliverance. Long for God's glory through deliverance. And then finally, we're going to see in verses 8 through 10, boast in God's victory over evil. Plead for God's grace, long for God's glory, boast in God's victory. That's the flow of the song that we're going to see this morning. So with that in mind, read along with me or listen to the word of the Lord. Psalm 6, beginning in verse 1. To the choir master, with stringed instruments, according to the Shemineth, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? 
Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. And Sheol, who will give you praise? But I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. And I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. And it grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled, and they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is the word of the Lord. Every single word is true. It is without error. May he write it on our hearts by his grace so that we would walk in it by his spirit. Let's begin in verse 1. David says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. God's discipline for David seems so harsh that it seems to David that God is angry with him. That perhaps God is treating him the way that God is treating David's own enemies, the way that we saw in Psalm 5 last week. And yet, what is it that brought on this rebuke that we see here in verse 1, this discipline? Did David sin? Well, as I mentioned earlier, that's how many in the church through the centuries have read this. The early church saw this as a penitential psalm, a psalm of confession. That here David is confessing sin. But if we read carefully verses 1 through 10, it doesn't seem that David is really confessing any sin the way that he does in other psalms of confession. No, it seems more likely as we read through the whole psalm that David is not falling weary under his own sin. He is wearied in the way that Job was wearied. A man who is a righteous man and yet is suffering. In the Bible, we see essentially two kinds of discipline. And the reason I think it's important to go into this and spend a little bit of time in verse 1 is because many of you, this idea of discipline, for a variety of reasons, perhaps from your own circumstances in the church or even in your own family, that discipline just has a bitter taste to it. It's hard to swallow. Well, the Bible speaks about discipline in no less than two ways. It speaks about discipline in the first hand as corrective discipline, that is discipline that comes from the hand of the Lord through his agents, whether that be natural causes or his church, that is for the ultimate correction of sin. And so we see this, for instance, in Matthew 18, that when a brother sins against another, they come to that brother, and if he still yet will not repent, more come, and yet they will take it even to the whole church, and the church will speak all for the goal of winning that brother to correct them. We see this again in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where Paul rebukes the church for allowing sin in their midst and tells them to remove the sinning brother from them as an act of discipline. Not ultimately as an act to be harsh, but so that his soul may be saved in the day of the Lord. It is corrective. God is too kind to let us remain in our sin. And so he disciplines us in the same way that we discipline our own children when they rebel against us. And yet the Bible also speaks not only of corrective discipline. I fear that that may be the only way that many of you think about discipline. But the Bible also speaks about discipline in a formative way. Not just corrective discipline, but formative discipline. If any of you have been athletes or musicians, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's the reason that you had to run 40s and do suicides and play scales until your fingers couldn't move anymore. It's to stretch you beyond your own ability so that even though you're good at what you do, you might be even better. God is doing that to his people all the time. In fact, the Christian life is a life of discipline, of always being disciplined in one way or the other. That's at the heart of being a disciple, is to be disciplined by the Lord in his love. 
That's why Solomon writes, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights. So David is speaking of the Lord's discipline here. But we don't know exactly why. Hebrews chapter 12, the author there quotes Proverbs 3. What I just read to you, Solomon's words, not to despise the Lord's discipline. And then adds a little bit of commentary. So if you would, just put your hand there, your finger there in Psalm 6. And go to your right to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is almost all the way to the end of your Bible. If you reach Revelation and you see bulls and dragons and those kinds of things, well, just go back to your left. You've gone too far. Go to Hebrews, and I want you to camp there in Hebrews chapter 12. And you'll notice in verse 5 when you get there that here the author is quoting Solomon, or Proverbs chapter 3. My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Nor be weary when reproved by him, for he disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. That's what I just quoted. And then in verses 7 all the way through 12, he's going to give some commentary. Just follow along. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Why are you going through these trials? Because God is disciplining you. He's forming you. God is treating you as sons. Why do you get discipline? Because you belong to him. You're his sons and daughters. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? That would be the mark of a bad father. Verse 8, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, that is all believers, you're not alone, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. That is, if you don't face the Lord's discipline, you're an orphan. You're not a son or a daughter. So to receive discipline from the Lord, to be formed and corrected by him is proof that you belong to him. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. Their knowledge was limited. But he disciplines us for our good. Get this, so that, here's the goal, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Sometimes God may discipline you because he sees sin in your life and he wants to get rid of it. James says that's the reason that some of you are sick. That's the reason that some of you need to be exhorted by God's word often when there is sin and unbelief, as we see in Matthew 18 and elsewhere. So sometimes God may discipline you because he sees sin in your life and wants to get rid of it. But if you're a believer here with a clear conscience, that is, there is no lingering, ongoing sin in your life, God may discipline you because he sees spiritual fruit in your life and he wants even more of it. So what we see, for instance, in John chapter 15, you are the vine, or I'm the vine, you are the branches. The Father is going to prune you so that you who bear fruit would bear more fruit. Later on, he says, lasting fruit. And that's the idea here. So sometimes the Lord in his love comes into our lives with corrective discipline. But there are some times where, and often, where the Lord is always working in our lives with formative discipline. The way a coach would with an athlete or a band director with a musician. Or an art mentor with an artist or a boss with an employee that he's raising up, it's to stretch us the way that an engineer would stretch that steel. David says, rebuke me not in your anger. Discipline me not in your wrath. The temptation is going to be to think that God is angry with you whenever things in your life seem to be going wrong and that God's hand can feel so heavy that it feels like God has it in for you. This is David's perspective at the very beginning of the psalm. But notice that David doesn't turn away from God's discipline. David wants to learn the lessons that God has for him. And so instead, instead of turning from God and hardening himself from God, instead of Psalm 6 ending in verse 1, he continues in verse 2 by pleading for grace to endure. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled. But you, O oh Lord, it's like he gets stopped in mid-sentence. He doesn't even know what else to say. But how long? 
how much longer? That word that you see there, languishing, has the sense of a plant wilting and withering its life, wasting away. You see the inverse too, that word troubled, it's, it's literally terrified. His soul was panicking and trembling. And so here David knows that his afflictions come from God's hand, but here he doesn't know at the end of verse 3 how long he'll be tested. He doesn't know how long this is going to go on, but he knows who is testing him. And so you'll notice four times in these first three verses, eight times overall in the psalm, David uses God's covenant name, Yahweh. You see that in your Bible? See that name that he uses, Lord, in all caps? Most of your translations should have Lord in all caps there. And that's different than when your Bible has the name Lord in lowercase. When it's not capitalized, it's the Bible, it's your Bible translating the Hebrew word Adonai. And Adonai refers to God's sovereignty, that he is almighty and all-powerful, that he is sovereign over everything. But David here isn't appealing to Adonai, though that's true, God is sovereign. Here he's appealing to God's covenant name. That's what, whenever you see it all in caps, it's translating the name Yahweh or Jehovah. And it speaks specifically to God's covenant faithfulness. His enduring love that is rooted in his promises that cannot be broken. That even when we are faithless, God is faithful because he cannot deny himself. That is the way that Paul describes the hesed of God, his covenant faithfulness. And so David is appealing to Yahweh. The covenant God, the promise-making God, and the promise-keeping God. And so when David is here processing the afflictions in his life, he doesn't merely confess, eh, God's sovereign. When he confesses to Yahweh, what he is saying is, God's sovereignty is for my good. Not merely God is sovereign. God is sovereign over all. But to those who belong to him by way of covenant, his sovereignty is at work for their good. Because he's promised it. I wonder how many of us in our suffering maybe stop short of simply confessing God's sovereignty. That would be right and good. God is sovereign. But I wonder if there is, if you are in Christ, a step further you might yet take and say, yes, God is sovereign, but that all of his sovereignty is providentially working for my good in Christ. Do you take it that extra step? That all of this has come by his hand for my good and for his glory. That is ultimately the grid that David is trying to process these challenging circumstances of this promise-making and this promise-keeping God. So he's saying, however I make sense of my languishing, however I make sense of my being troubled, I've got to make sense of it in, in the context of God's promises. Because he can't deny himself. And because he can't deny himself, he can't deny me. So it can't mean that God's abandoned me. And if it doesn't mean that, then what does it mean? Well, that's what David is going to process over the course of this psalm. The commentator James Johnston helps us kind of understand what's going on here as we think about God's sovereignty working for David and in many of your lives for you. He says there's many types of faith that we simply cannot have except in times of trouble. You can't trust God with your life until your life is on the line. You can't really trust God to provide unless you have nothing and cannot provide for yourself. You cannot fully hope in God unless you have no other hope. Friend, if you're here today and you are not a Christian, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. The people around you here today that would call themselves Christians are here because God has brought them to the point of recognizing that they cannot provide any righteousness of their own. That they cannot provide any hope for themselves. That they have maxed out their moral and spiritual resources and have fa been found eternally wanting. And that God in his sovereignty has brought each one of us to the place of recognizing that we could not please him if we tried. 
and that our only hope was to throw ourselves entirely on His grace in His Son, Jesus Christ. Of living a life of perfect obedience that you and I could never in a million years live because of sin. Of Him dying a death in our place for every man and woman and tribe and tongue who would repent and trust in His name, that His shed blood is sufficient for the total wiping out of all of your sins. You are insufficient, and yet Christ is sufficient. And yet He did not stay dead. He rose from the grave to show that in all the ways that you cannot grant yourself and in all the ways that this world has failed to give you fullness of life, He gives you fullness of life, full resurrection life, that the penalty of sin has not only been paid for, but the very power of sin has been broken. And one day for every single man and woman who belongs to Christ, He will return and the very presence of sin will be done away with forever. Friend, that is what you could have in Christ. Perhaps you're here this morning because God has brought you to the end of your own sense of self-sufficiency. And I hope that you would see that that is His grace and mercy in your life. Oh, may today be the day that you would turn and trust in Christ. Or if you're, for you brothers and sisters here, though, who are in Christ and yet are still trying to make sense of trials and testing from the Lord in the context of His Faithfulness, what are, what are they for? What's God trying to do in my life? Let me perhaps try to help you by way of an illustration. A young woman went to her mom at one point and told her about all the th things in her life that were hard, things going on. How she wanted to give up, how she was tired of fighting and struggling, at how it seemed like God had it in for her. So her mother gently took her into the kitchen and she brought three pots to boiling on the stove. And in the, in the first pot, she put carrots. And in the second pot, she put eggs. And in the last pot, she put coffee. And she let them simmer. In about 20 minutes or so, she turned off the burners. She scooped out the carrots and she placed them in a bowl. And then she pulled out the eggs and placed them in another bowl. And, and then she poured two cups of coffee. And turning to her daughter, she asked, tell me what you see. And her daughter replied, well, I see carrots and eggs and coffee. So the mother said, well, I want you to feel the carrots. And her, so she felt them, and of course, the carrots were soft and, and limp and mushy and fell apart in her hand. And her mother asked her to then take one of the eggs and, and to peel it off. And as she did, she tapped the egg on the counter and pulled off the shell, revealing a hard-boiled egg. That which was once soft is now hard. But then finally, her mother handed her a cup of coffee. And the girl looked at her cup and said, what is this? What does this mean? What are you trying to tell me? Well, perhaps the secondary lesson is that coffee is always better than carrots and eggs, which should be the motto for Denton. What she was really trying to show her is that each of these objects had faced the exact same adversity. Each one of them had sat in boiling water for the same amount of time, and each one of them had reacted differently. The carrot went in strong and hard, but after 20 minutes it was limp. The egg had been fragile and delicate, but now it was hardened. But the coffee was different. The coffee had released its fragrance and all of its flavor into the water. So the mother turns to the daughter and she says, which are you? Are you the carrots? Are you the eggs? Or are you the coffee? That when, when God brings trouble into your life, will, you, will your heart go limp and faint like a carrot? Or will you turn and harden yourself like an egg against God? Or will you release the fragrance of faith and trust Him? Well, here in Psalm 6, David is releasing the fragrance of faith. And it's the kind of fragrance that only this kind of testing, whatever it is that he's facing, can bring out. And so he pled for grace from the very God who brought this testing into his life. Brother sister, has your heart ever been gripped by real terror because of the trouble that God has brought into your life? Of not knowing what the future holds? Of the kind of uncertainty that keeps you awake at night that has your stomach knotted where you lose appetite, where you tremble? 
Well, Martin Luther said, no one who has not been profoundly terrified and forsaken prays profoundly. That no one who has not been profoundly terrified and forsaken prays profoundly. And that's right. And that's exactly what we see in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. So keep your hand there again in Psalm chapter 6. And I want you to skip over to John 12. Hey, before you do, just look at this real quick. Verse 3, my soul is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Just store that in your memory bank for as long as you can. I'm only going to ask you to store it for a couple of minutes. But store that up and tell me if, if this sounds familiar, John chapter 12. Here we are in the Gospel of John. Verse 20, they went up to worship at the feast of the Greeks. Some came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And he says, The hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In other words, everything going on in my life up to this point is all coming to a head. The very purpose for which I have come is right before me. The way that John breaks up his gospel is really into two halves. Chapter 1 through chapter 12 is all about Jesus' public ministry, that is, his preaching and the performing of miracles. And chapters 13 through the end of the gospel is Jesus' private ministry, his ministry to his disciples, his, his praying for them and equipping them, and then his going solely and silently, all by himself, quietly to the cross. So here he is at the end of his public ministry. Everything is coming to a head. The current is quickly gaining rapidity and it is carrying him toward Golgotha. And look at what he says in verse 27. Keep Psalm 5 verse 3 in mind. He says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? He is at a loss for words in the same way that David was at loss for words. And he says, Father, save me from this hour. Is that what I'm to say? How long? But yet for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. What we see in Psalm chapter 6 was David's inner torment looking forward to Christ's inner torment as the Savior of the world. And here we see Jesus quoting Psalm 6 to give voice to his own anticipation of his suffering. To give voice to God's humbling him, of humiliating him. You've got to recognize that all of the incarnation was humiliation for Christ. It was him leaving the glorious throne that was rightfully his and all of the praise that he is worthy of and humiliating himself all the way from conception to the cross and to the grave. And here his humiliation is reaching its lowest point. And he cries out in the same way that David cries out in the face of his suffering. His inner torment was articulated centuries early by David. And those words by David become our Lord's words. It's pointing to a greater suffering. A suffering that would serve a greater purpose. Of an anointed king who would suffer for the sake of his people. Brothers and sisters, this is a comfort to every single one of us. Because in your deepest trials, in all of your testing, Jesus has not asked you to walk a path that he himself has not tread. That's why the author to the Hebrews calls him a sympathetic high priest. He knows what it is to be tempted. He knows what it is to be tired. He knows what it is to be weary he knows what it is to stare his circumstances in the face with uncertainty, to be terrified, and be forced to walk by faith. That was Christ in his humanity. He was in every way fully human as you and I were human. He wasn't Clark Kent and a Superman wearing a suit, faking it all along. That he was human in every way that you and I were human. He was tired and he hungered. He was weary and he was scared and he was terrified. And he was forced to trust the Lord in his darkest days. That is a comfort. That we have a sympathetic high priest in Christ who is not only 
died but is risen and now sits at the right hand of the Father who has given us free and open access to the throne of grace so that we can come confidently to him, making our requests known to him in our time of need. Why does God put you in times of need? So that you would come to his throne of grace. Why is it called a throne of grace? So that you don't have to put yourself together. He expects you to come with some ugly cry. God stretches us so that we would stop relying on ourselves and that we would fall completely on Christ in his sympathetic ministry and approach his grace for mercy in our time of need. Friend, you are not alone when you are tested. You are not alone in your trials. Christ is not asking you as he brings trials into your life to walk any path that he himself has not trod. This is the path of sanctification. That Christ, for the joy set before him, endured the cross and despised the shame. Brothers and sisters, let's look to Christ. Everything that he's leading you through is for joy set before you. Do you believe that? That's what God's doing in David's life. Go back to Psalm 6. So we've seen David plead for God's grace to endure. You and I should do the exact same thing. In your trials, do you turn to your own resources? Do you turn first to friends? Do you turn first to family? Listen, all of those are good, but all of them will fall woefully short of the enduring and persevering grace that God can give you. Let us first turn to God when we're tested. But secondly, we're going to see that David, though he pleads for God's grace to endure, is going to long for God's glory through deliverance. Look at this. Change in perspective. Turn, O Lord, he says, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there's no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Oh, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief and grows weak because of my foes. Verse 6 and 7, let me ask you a question. Have you ever cried so hard because of challenging circumstances in your life that you can barely keep your eyes open? They're so tired. That's what's happening with David. He's going, I'm just, I've got nothing left. I'm exhausted. And of course, he's using metaphorical language here, but he's going, I have flooded The place that should be the source of rest has not been rest. I have flooded it with my tears to the point that I can barely keep them open. They're just so tired. I've got bags, he's saying. I'm exhausted. I'm languishing. I'm troubled. I'm moaning. There's grief. There's tears. There's weeping. There's sleeplessness. David was in the throes of depression. Statistically speaking, those statistics are a little comfort. 25% of our congregation at any time will be battling depression in some form or another. Some more extreme than others. And there are times where we, because when things press in on us, whether it is foes from outside of us or whether it's biology from inside of us or whatever it may be, can cause us to end up exactly where David's at. And I just want to stop for a moment. And if you're somebody here that is currently struggling with depression or have struggled with depression, And you've had people come to you and tell you to basically suck it up, read your Bible, pray more, and have more faith. That was well-intentioned, but terrible advice. What God's Word does is give you permission to be a big, hot mess in the midst of dark seasons. That here's, in fact, David, what we're going to see here in verses 4 through 7, 
that even in the midst of all of this is not an absence of faith, but is going to be the context in which David's faith is going to be exercised and grows. In fact, you're going to see in Psalm 6 that at no point anywhere in this psalm do we see David's circumstances being lifted. He's just sitting in it. Some of you have been sitting in it for months, even years. God's word gives you freedom to moan and to cry until your eyes are tired and to not feel guilty and ashamed when you get to almost the breaking point. And yet God's word gives you resources by his spirit to even in those seasons to deepen your faith and to walk in faith and to trust God to sustain you for as long as he has you in that season. How long? How long? Some of you have prayed that. God, how long? How long am I going to be here? I don't want to be here anymore. God's word gives you permission to talk to God like that. That's freedom. And yet never with the goal of focusing and becoming obsessed with your own circumstances because we see here is that even in his circumstances, even in David's longing to have all of this lifted, his longing of all longings, his deepest and greatest longing is for God's glory. He says, turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there's no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? David says, turn, O Lord. Some of your translations say, return, O Lord. And that's probably a better translation. The prophets would use that word, return. The same word that David used here is a call to repentance, a call to turn away from sin and to God. Well, David isn't here asking God to turn from sin because God cannot sin, but David is asking God for a, a drastic course correction. God, would you bring change? It doesn't mean that God is changeable. It just means that I need to see you in new ways in my circumstances in such a way that would help me endure my circumstances, that would help me to see your glory for my good in my circumstances. God, I need you to, to turn things so that I can see you more clearly. And he says, deliver me, save me. How many of you have grown weary from saying, deliver me, save me in the midst of your trials? That's something I used to pray and God hasn't yet, yet done it. So I don't pray that way anymore because it just sets me up for disappointment. And you can trust because of God's word that even at this, you can pray how long in the same breath with save me and deliver me. And you can trust because God is a promise keeping and a promise keeping, a promise making and a promise keeping God that he will answer your prayer even if he doesn't tell you when he will answer your prayer. Pray like David prays. Don't grow weary of asking him for deliverance. Don't grow weary of asking him to save you. And yet, even as you do, have your concerns be David's concerns. You see what his concerns are, verse 4? Save me, not for my sake, not for the sake of my own comfort, not for the sake of easier circumstances. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Save me, into verse 5, for the sake of your praise. David longs for others to see God's glory, and he wants to see it. That's at the heart of that word remembrance there in verse 5. And when he says that, he's not talking about a collection of memories. Now, that word remembrance has the sense of recounting and repeating the things that God has done. It's the idea of Ebenezer in the Old Testament. It's the idea of stones of remembrance, that every time you come back to those stones, you remember what God has done and who God is. That's what David is saying here. If you have a New American Standard Bible, it translates it in a little bit more helpful way. He says, why? There is no mention of you in death. If you have an NIV, it says it, paraphrases it well. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. That is David's primary concern. If I die, which it feels like I'm going to die. Anybody feel that way sometimes? If I die, who will tell others about the great and mighty things you've done to deliver me? Deliver me so that I can preach about your deliverance. That is what David wanted more than anything, David longs to be delivered, but not ultimately for his own comfort, but for God's glory. Oh, brothers and sisters, affliction is meant to drive us to God. 
And as we gain a God-centered view of our affliction, we see that God's glory is our greatest good. And that we would be able to say, praise God for sending that affliction upon me. That's a crazy prayer. Those are the kinds of prayers that we can pray in the midst of suffering when we have a God-centered view of our suffering. Those are the kind of prayers that make God look really good. Those are the kind of prayers that adorn the doctrine of God in suffering. It's a powerful perspective for us to hold on to whenever God is stretching us. That we would be able to pray, Lord, what I want most in this situation is for you to bring glory to yourself. I want the pain to end, of course, you know that. End it, please. Please rescue me. Because I'm about to break. But save me so that I can tell others about your great glory and power. At the end of the day, this is about you, Lord, not about me. Whatever brings you praise will ultimately bring me pleasure. Whatever brings you glory is ultimately for my good. How many of you have ever prayed that way in suffering? That's David's concern. It is a God-centered view of his trials in such a way that he knows that even in the most bitter trials, God's glory is his greatest good. He's concerned for to see God's glory and he's concerned to make it known so that others would see that God's glory is their greatest good and that he is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God and that all of his testing that he sends into our lives can be made sense of by his good and perfect purposes to make us holy as he is holy. This was Paul's perspective, Philippians 1. You remember this? Paul's writing from jail. He's, just, he's thinking, man, I'm good as dead. He said, you know, <clears throat> for to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I enjoy living. I get to preach Christ and make disciples. Oh, but to be with Christ, that would be so much better. That's what Paul writes in Philippians 1. I love you. I love preaching the gospel, but I want to behold Christ with my eyes, Coram Deo. You remember what he says, Philippians chapter 1? Even though he longs to go home, he longs to see Christ. He says, but it is better for me to remain for your own sake and for your joy. Paul is just echoing the very same spirit of David. That if I've got to stay here and I've got to be imprisoned and I've got to be tested and I've got to undergo trials and God is not going to see fit to deliver me right in this moment, that may it be for your good and for your joy. Have you ever thought about your trials in that way? That perhaps God has sent them into your life so that others would see the glory and the grace and the power of God in delivering you. Have you prayed for that? Longed for that? Is this your perspective? Because that's exactly what God has brought him to do. So David longs for the glory of God. But then finally, in verses 8 through 10, he boasts in God's victory over evil. It's amazing what you see. You don't know what happens between verse 7 and verse 8. It's a morning prayer. And so this is probably around evening time, but something has happened along the way and the whole tone of the psalm changes. He's cried out to God. He's ugly cried. He's weeped and moaned. He's complained. He's cried out his lack of understanding. But then all of a sudden in verse 8, it's like a different David emerges. Depart from me, he says, you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All of the enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled and they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Here the darkness of David's night makes the sunrise all the more beautiful. And you can feel the change in David's heart with a new energy in his command. The king is off of his tear-soaked bed and he's taking charge with a fresh confidence. And look at the language that he uses. Verse 8, the Lord has heard. Verse 9, the Lord has heard. He says again, the Lord accepts. All of this in the Hebrew is in the perfect tense. It's a completed action that has happened in the past. So here's David going from, I don't really know what's going on and why do you have me and, and how long and hear me as I, as I cry to, he has heard me. I am as good as heard. And my prayers are as good as answered. Whoa, how does he get that kind of confidence? Do you see those capitalized names again? 
He peppers them in this section again, just like he did verses one through three. It's because of Yahweh. It's because of the promise keeping and the promise making and the promise keeping God. That I am able to know, I mean, know, even if my circumstances haven't yet changed, I know that God has answered my prayers, not because I've prayed perfect prayers, not because everything that came out of my mouth was pretty. He, he was ugly crying through the whole psalm. But I know that God has answered my prayers because I know that God is faithful to his promises. He has to answer my prayer. He has to be for me. He has to work this for my good because he promised and he cannot deny himself. So David's confidence isn't a change in circumstance. It is a change in theological perspective. He prayed that God would return and broaden his view of his, of his providence in his life, of how he works all things for good according to his promises. And now here David sees it, even though he's still yet in the midst of his painful circumstances. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, then do you know that you have been brought into an even better covenant than the one enjoyed by David at this point? It is a covenant made in Christ. It is a covenant when ratified by Christ through the shedding of his blood became the yes and the amen to all of David's longings. And that covenant, that indissoluble, unbreakable, indestructible bond that Christ now has with you is the answer to your greatest longings and needs and your deepest suffering. Because what it says is, there is no amount of sin in your suffering that has not yet been paid for. It has all been paid for. that there is no amount of suffering and no length of time for your trial that you will not yet one day be delivered either in this life or in the next. I will deliver you. It is to know with clear confidence that because I belong to Christ, I belong to the Father and the Father has given me to Him and He loses not one and nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It is not a confidence that comes from pain being lifted. And I know that there are some of you in here that you, you long for pain to be lifted. I want that pain to be lifted. But God's not done with your pain. And he uses every ounce of it for his glory and for your And while I pray that God would deliver you, my prayer even more than that is that God would cause you to endure in his grace, to long for his glory, and even yet awaiting deliverance to boast in his victory. Even if you've not yet won, even if the enemy is still fighting, the victory has already been won. He has triumphed over everything in the cross. Do you believe that? That even in trials you are victorious in Christ. Oh, I pray that that would be the pillow that you lay your head on tonight. That tear-soaked pillow for some of you. That your confidence would be in Christ. Let's pray.